Thanks, guys. Um, I often get a chance to speak, uh, but it's usually before college students. So there's like college churches or, or just different campus ministries will ask me to come speak. You might have even been here a few weeks ago. If you remember, I kind of awkwardly walked in. I was wearing like a tie, which is like something I never wear. That was because I had just come from another church while I was speaking. So at least I don't have to wear a tie here. Most of the time when you speak for someone, though, it's because the pastor's out of town. You know, so it's great. So they're not there, so you don't have to worry about it. But here, Jake's sitting right here. Come on. Just throwing me into the bus and putting all the pressure on right away. Um, I'm excited. I, gotta, I get to continue this whole series. So we are going to keep uh, doing the series on identity. And so we're going to be in Ephesians again. Um, one of the things that I really like about Ephesians is that I've actually been there. I've actually been to Ephesus. So this is crazy, but 20 years ago, so 1994, I was on a mission trip to Turkey. And we're mainly in Ankara, the capital city of Turkey. But at the end of our trip, they let us go tour and see some of these churches that were in ancient, you know, modern uh, Turkey, ancient province of Asia, where the gospel really advanced. And so I'm going to show you a picture here in a moment of my time in Turkey. But one of the coolest things about Turkey is in Acts, there you go, this is, I'm going to tell you what this is here. In Acts chapter 19, you really should go read the history of what happened in Ephesus, because it's one of the most uh, miraculous stories of the gospel advancing in a city in a really, really dramatic way. I will, I will say there's some kind of weird stuff that happens in it, so you're going to have to read it and wrestle with some of the weird things that happen. There's like demon possession, there's, there's people speaking in tongues, there's healings by just people's shadows and handkerchiefs going on, and then there's this huge movement where everyone just repents. But guess where it, where it started? It started in a college. So that's why I like it. So it's, it's actually a, the first campus ministry, maybe you could say, because if you read Acts, Acts 19, what happens is Paul goes and he's speaking in the synagogues, and it says that no one was listening. He found it just to be kind of a rough crowd. So he said he moved, and he went with his disciples to the Hall of Tyrannus, which would be like kind of a modern college, or it was a philosophy school, or a place where they just studied and talked about the latest things. And so this is actually the Hall of Tyrannus, or so they say, a spot where the people would have been studying. And it says that Paul met there with the disciples for two years, and get this, in Acts 19.10, it says that within, the, within two years, everyone, Jews and Greeks in the whole province of Asia, everyone in modern-day Turkey had heard the gospel. Just after two years, but it started in a college campus. So, so you guys get the, the campus minister to, to start this off with you guys today. So happy to, happy to speak into that. Um, I don't know about you, but I was really moved last week by what Jake shared. Um, you know, when Paul writes many of his books, actually most of them, he front loads them with truth, right? So even in Ephesians, we've got three chapters where there's like no command. It's just truth, truth, truth. Here's who you are. And like we're talking in this series, this is who we are in Christ, front-loaded with truth because we've, we've been kind of repeating the statement, if you know who you are, then you know what to do. And Paul, uh, with his affection and his years of ministry to Ephesus, is writing them back, and he spends these first three chapters just saying, you've got to remember who you are in Christ. And that's actually how my passage starts off. It starts off with this word, for this reason. So it's referencing back to everything that, that Paul had written before. And if you remember Jake said last time, and you'll remember this, it was one long sentence, that verses 3 through 14, Paul just kind of got on a roll and just rambled a sentence. Well, this one that we're going to look at today is actually Paul's prayer for, for the Ephesians, and it's also one long sentence, and he just rambles and rambles and rambles. But as he's praying, one of the things that this passage is a little unique from the last one, the last one really looked at who we are in Christ. This one really looks at how we can know God. And so I'd like to change the phrase a little bit. We've said, if you know who you are, you know what to do. You could also say real similarly, if we know whose we are, we know what to do. If we know whose we are, if we know who God is, that helps us live out the rest of our life. And again, it's why Paul would spend so much time just saying truth, truth, truth before he gets to any application. And so we're going to look today, really, I'll, I'll tell you what my two main points are. They're pretty simple. One is that in Christ, we can know God intimately, and in Christ, we can experience God powerfully. So in Christ, we can know God intimately, and we can experience him powerfully. 
So he starts off his prayer this way. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's how Paul often starts a lot of his letters, right? Where he just starts praying for them. And he's going to pray something real specific. He says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We kind of highlighted those two parts because before we talk about what it means to actually know God intimately, he first talks about this, that we need this revelation. His prayer is that God would open the eyes of their heart, that, that inside of us, the heart kind of being in, in our innermost parts, our soul, there's something that needs to happen where God has to open that. We need a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know him better, which is why Paul starts by praying, because he believed that praying was really what unlocks people's hearts. This was kind of a ministry philosophy that Paul had, and you can see kind of where he would get it from, right? So if you know the story of Paul, he was the one that was the persecutor of the church. When Stephen, the first martyr, was there, it said Paul was right there at his feet when it happened. He's on this crusade to, to persecute the church, and he's on his way to Damascus to do more of it, when God literally just knocks him down, and he blinds him, and for three days he can't see, and Jesus reveals who he is to him. A guy who had no intention to seek God, all of a sudden, in a moment, his eyes are opened. And so you can see why Paul would, would even start with this phrase, right? I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be open, just as mine were closed for three days. I'm praying that yours would be open. And this is really a ministry philosophy that he had. He believed that ultimately it's a spiritual battle that's taking place within all of us to know God, to believe the truths about God, or the enemy is getting us to believe lies about God. There's another verse that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so Paul believed that there was spiritual blindness. And the only way we can break through spiritual blindness is if God intervenes. And so he's praying for this revelation for his people. To look at a little bit of this ministry philosophy, I'll look at uh, 1 Corinthians 2. This is what, what Paul said in the way that he did his ministry. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I love this passage because we tend to think of Paul being this like incredible speaker. But when you read really about Paul, many people said he wasn't very eloquent. He even said it of himself. I didn't come to you with, with wisdom. I didn't have these great arguments. But he relied deeply on the Spirit, knowing that spiritual battle was taking place. And ultimately, God had to reveal himself to people. And I think that should give us a little bit of a relief, too. I don't know about you, but those of us who are following Christ and we're talking with our friends about our faith, often I'll you know, talk to someone and afterwards I'll come home and I'll kind of get down on myself like, oh, I should have asked this question. I wish I would have said that. Or I wish I wouldn't have said that. That was kind of rude. And I try to get down on myself and think, oh, man, I did it wrong. But Paul's saying it, it's not about our words. It's not about our arguments. So we can take off the, the pressure of thinking it's all about us. We can rely instead on God. In fact, we need to rely on God. That's why Paul starts this with a prayer, because prayer is how you fight that spiritual battle, and people's hearts can be open. In the same passage, he goes on a little bit further, and he says, however, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, we, we can't understand all the things that God has prepared for us. We go back in Ephesians when it says that we've been given every spiritual blessing, we cannot understand it. It's too big. It's too vast. We can't understand it. But, he says, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. 
The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we've received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so they may understand what God has freely given us. If we're able to understand what God's freely given us, even as we enter into the series and continue to talk about our identity, the only hope that we have to get any of it, the only hope we have to get any of it, is if the Spirit reveals it to us. That's how we can understand. And this is why prayer is so important, guys, and why Paul would start with a prayer. Because that's how we, we fight the spiritual battle for ourselves, for our friends, for each other, for our friends that aren't following God. I like the way my friend phrases it. He says we should talk to God about our friends more than we talk to our friends about God. What if we kind of adopted that as a, a kind of a, a mantra? We're going to talk to God about our friends more than we talk to our friends about God. Because ultimately, we can't convince anyone to follow Jesus. Even in our discipleship with one another, within our huddles, we can't spur one another on by our own human effort. It's only God. It's revelation. It's God's spirit working inside of us that makes us change. And so that's why prayer is most important. We should talk to our friends, but we should talk to our God, God about our friends even more. So that's the first thing I wanted you guys to get, that Paul starts with prayer for a reason, that he had a conviction that revelation comes ultimately from God's spirit. But this is what he prays then. He prays that we can know God intimately. He said, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so you can know God. And this is the privilege that we have as believers, that that God invites us into an actual relationship with him. It's not a religion. It's not just a bunch of creeds. It's not just a bunch of ideas. It's not a statement or we just sign. It's not just a prayer. But God invites us, each of us, individually, into a relationship with him. That's the joy that we have as believers. And I know a little bit about the Greek. I don't know read Greek, but I just read a commentary that said that this word no is different from the other no's that we'll see in this. This no, the Greek word was, was to have intimate relationship with. That that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. One, where we know him personally, not just facts about him, not just agreeing with some creed or statement, but that we actually interact with God and know him in a relational way. Uh, some of you guys might know that I'm actually a, a huge UT fan. I'm a huge UT baseball fan, so I'm going to the game right after this. I actually have a ticket. If anyone wants to go with me to the game at 1 o'clock, just hit me up. We can go together. Um, Roger Clemens' son plays for UT right now, and so I've actually been sitting in seats where Roger Clemens sits, like a, seat, a row in front of me and like two seats down. So I've you know, got to say hi to him or whatever, but pretty much try to ignore him if I can. A hilarious thing happened last Sunday. We're sitting, we're sitting there at the game, and there's seats ne- next to us that are open, the ones that are right behind Roger. About the eighth inning, some people just come down and sit in them. They probably weren't their seats, but they just came to sit down there. And so Roger Clemens' son comes up to bat, and you hear the guys next to us saying, hey, is that maybe Roger Clemens' son? Is that Roger Clemens' son? And then they literally tap Roger on the shoulder and be like, hey, is that, is that Roger Clemens' son? <laughs> Roger turns around and he goes, yeah, he's, he's one of his sons. And kind of turns back around, and we are just cracking up. Like, did that really just happen? What is this guy? So we can say, this guy, this guy does not know Roger Clemens, right? What if I told you I know him? Like, I know him. I, I go to baseball games with him. Roger and I go together. And you say, really? Well, tell me, tell me about it. What's he like? Tell me, tell me what Roger's like. And I go, oh, well, he started off at San Jacinto College, and he came to the University of Texas in 1983. He was part of a national championship team. He went pro. He was the 19th pick by the, the Boston Red Sox. He played in the major leagues for 24 years. He was an 11-time uh, All-Star, Cy Young Awards uh, seven times. Once he was the MVP of the whole league. He's won a World Series twice. His career batting or ERA was 3.14, and he used steroids. Um, <laughs> you would say, well, well what, do you really know him, Justin? I said, yeah, yeah, I just told you all about him. You'd say, wait, you can Google that, right? 
which is exactly what I did. <laughs> and anything that you can Google does not equate to the knowledge that we're talking about here. And this is what, what Paul's saying. I want you guys to know Christ. I don't want you to know about him. I don't want you to be able to you know, write your little religious creeds and say this is true and this is true. He wants you to know him. Each of us individually, that we can have a relationship with God where we experience him and know him. Each of us in a different way. And this is where, for those of us who've been Christians longer, we really have to watch our hearts. Because if we're not careful, we can take past experiences and things that we know about God and we can settle into this place where we're really not meeting with God and knowing him. And we just have a bunch of things that we say that we believe. We, we surround it with religious activity and we come to church and we do our things. But there's no intimacy. There's no real pursuit of God personally. It's just the things that we see on the outside and, and maybe past experiences that we've had. And so Paul's writing the Ephesians and he's saying, I want you guys to know Christ this way. And I want you to keep knowing him. And then I like the, the, the next word that he says. He actually says that you may know him better. That you can know him better. And so to me, I love this, because uh, that means we're never done with our knowing, right? We get, we get to keep knowing and keep knowing and keep knowing. There's always more room to grow. That means that we can all rest in this room and say we're all in process. Wherever God has us, we're continuing to pursue him. We can call each other to grow more and more, to know God more and more, but we never get it completely. In fact, the, the next prayer that happens in Ephesians is in Ephesians 3. I think it's going to be the last one we do on this series, and Paul prays this another crazy prayer. He says, I pray that you would have full knowledge of the unknowable love of God. It's like, what do you, that makes no sense. I want you to know what's unknowable. Exactly. That that's how great God is, and we pursue him, and we can pursue him, and know him better and better and better. And we can relax because we're all in process. Even Paul, who's writing this, isn't writing it from up here saying, I wish all of you guys could know God better. Listen to what he says of himself and what his own goals are and how he wanted to know Christ better. This is from Philippians 3. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. See, there he is. I want to know him too. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have I already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of what Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul applies the same thing to himself. It was his same aim. He said, I just want to know God better and better and better. I'm going to press on to know it. I'm going to move past the bad things that have happened. I'm going to keep moving forward because there's so much more to know. And we can all know God better and better. I don't know if you guys, did y'all get the Gospel of John that was mailed to every single resident in Austin? Did y'all get that? Yeah, so I don't know who did it, but everyone got a Gospel of John. So I decided that I would kind of read John, kind of like in solidarity with maybe some people in the city actually got it and started to read it. So I would read it each morning and pray for the city. And one of the things that struck me last week when I was reading a few passages in John 13, 14, is is how dumb the disciples were, (laughs) how they just didn't get it. And and it sounds kind of bad, but for me, I was like, I'm right there with them. Thank goodness that they didn't get it. It should put my heart at rest to say, they still had a lot more growth to go, and that's okay. Listen to some of these. This is John 13, when Jesus is washing their feet. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but you'll understand later. I wrote a little note in my Bible. That happens often. (laughs) You do not realize what I'm doing, but you'll understand later. No, Peter said, you should never wash my feet. Jesus answered, well, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. Then then Simon says, well, not just my feet, but wash my whole body. Scrub me down. I'm just like... What a dork. Like, he just, uh, he just doesn't get it. He's always trying to come up with the right answer. Like, come on, Peter. And so later, they're, at, they're having the Lord's Supper together. And Jesus is telling them that someone's going to betray them. And they're like, well, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And then Jesus answered uh, to one of the disciples, John. He says, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread. And when I've dipped it in a dish, then after dipping the piece in the bread, he gave it to Judas. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. And then he said to him, what you're about to do, do it quickly, Jesus told him. But no one understood why Jesus said this to them. Since Jesus, Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling them to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. I mean, I mean they're right there. He just said, someone's going to betray me. John's like, which one? He says, this one. <laughs> now go do it. And then it says, right, real plainly, but no one understood what happened. Good. I'm like that too. John 14, the very next chapter. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so you may be where I am and know the way to the place where I'm going. So Thomas pipes in, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus like, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father. From now on, you know him because you've seen me. Then Philip pipes in, but Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I just found such comfort in, in knowing that they're, they're right there. I do the same thing. That, that, but Jesus is so patient to, to keep walking with us. And come on, I'm going to show you more. I'm going to show you more, particularly if you keep seeking. One more example You get even to the resurrection. Jesus had clearly told them that he was going to rise from the dead. And on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. And she came running to Simon and Peter and the disciples that Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Just unbelief. So Peter and John, they race. And you get this funny picture that John actually beats Peter, so he must have been more fit. He beats him to the tomb. And they get there and says, some saw and believed. But then it said, and they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then he appears to them, but Thomas isn't there. And Thomas later says, well, I'll believe if I can feel his hands and see his side. And so Jesus kindly shows up and says, Thomas, go ahead. This is how he treats us. He calls us to more, and there's so much more to know of him. And we can be dumb little disciples along the way. But if we keep seeking, he keeps meeting us and revealing more and more of himself to us. We're all in process of getting to know God better. Well, Paul says that prayer changes the prayer just a little bit here, and he prays for two more things. He prays that we can know our future hope and our present power. First, let's look at we can know our future hope. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance. You can know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance. Remember what Jesus just said in that John 14 passage I read? He said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. All the riches that we have in Christ, the hope that we have that our salvation is sure, that we're going to live with God and with his people forever, that should give us tremendous hope. We should know that we have this glorious inheritance, that we are sons and daughters of God, and he's got something for us in the future. Jesus Jesus said, 
Just as he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is the hope that we should have. I was doing some um, marital counseling with a cousin of mine that asked me to marry them this summer, and we met for the first time last week. And uh, I, I don't think they're believers. They, they come from kind of church backgrounds, but I could tell by some of the ways they responded, I didn't feel like they, they generally were, were trying to follow Jesus or, or really understood the good news of the gospel. At the end of our time, we were just kind of small talking, and he said, hey, can I ask you another question unrelated? I said, sure. He said, are you scared of the afterlife and death? I said, well, I, I don't want to die in a painful way, <laughs> but I said, honestly, no. I'm, I'm not scared about the afterlife. I said, my faith is in Jesus, and he said things like, whoever uh, puts his faith in me, well, well, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, that, that anyone who believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. I, I'm fully trusting that what he said is true. And he said, man, I think about it every day, and it scares me. And I said, well, let, let's look at some scriptures next week. Next time we get together, let's look at some scriptures and see what Jesus said about the assurity, assurance of our salvation, that, that we have this inheritance in the future, that sure, and my faith is in him because he said it. So we've agreed to do so. Brenda and I have a pretty fun tradition. So on our anniversary, September 29th, we've had 12. We do a, uh, something pretty cool. One person plans a trip and keeps it a secret from the other one the whole time. <clears throat> it's really fun. So we've been to 12 different places. We get to go to some fun places since we can fly for free. Um, and, and it's really fun no matter which side of the, the, the coin you're on. So if you're the person who doesn't know and you're kind of left in the dark, uh, one person's behind the scenes just scheming and planning. And pretty much all you get to know is we're going to tell you about what the temperature is so you know what to pack and what activities we might do. And then you might throw in a couple of hints here and there. And, and as, as it gets closer to our anniversary, you're, you're the person who doesn't know, but you at least know it's going to be great because you're going to be with the person that you love, and you trust that they know what you like, and they're planning something great for you. It's even more fun, in my opinion, to be the one that's keeping the secret. And you're planning it, and you're scheming, and you've got everything all set up, and you drop some clues and give them little glimpses, and you're behind the scenes working it. This is exactly what this means by eternal inheritance. That God's got a future for us, and, and he's given us little glimpses of it. He shows us what it's like, and it should start to well up in us a hope. And mainly the hope is that we're going to get to be with him. And while we talk about knowing God only in part right now, when we get there, we're going to know him completely. The search is over. We're no longer in process. He renews our hearts, and we get to live with him forever. That's, the, that's what he's praying, that we would know this, this hope and this call. Then he prays another thing. He prays that we would know his power, knowing the present power that we have. This is kind of a funny part in the prayer. As he continues, he says, "...and this incomparable great power for us who believe." And this power is the same of his mighty, is like his mighty strength, which he exerted in, when, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I think it's funny because he has this prayer. So he said he wants us to know the hope to which we're called, the glorious inheritance that we have. But then he says we also want to know this present power. And then Paul kind of goes a little bit off track. It's, it seems like, wait, are you, are you praying anymore? Or he just kind of gets excited about God's power and just rambles about it. I was uh, at, talking with Jake about the passage this week and saying this is kind of funny how he kind of starts in a prayer. And all of a sudden this part seems like he's not quite praying, but he just got so excited about the power of God that he just kind of went off on it. We already know this is one long sentence, so Paul's excited already. And Jake told me a funny story. He said that uh, there was a youth pastor, or when he was a youth pastor, there was a guy on his worship team that would kind of spontaneously pray as he was lead, leading worship. So between songs, he'd start praying a certain way, 
But then somewhere in the middle of his prayer, he'd start preaching. And you're like, wait, is he praying or preaching? You're like bowing your head. Like, am I taking notes? What am I supposed to do here? And you get this idea that Paul just got so excited. I want you to know this power. I want you to know this power. And then he just goes off on it. And ultimately saying this power is the power of resurrection. That we have this resurrection power alive for us today. This power is like, he says, the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. There's four kind of Greek words in here all related to power. I think Paul's trying to say something, that we have this resurrection power available and present to us. Uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I don't cry very often. I might cry during like a you know, touching movie, something like that. That can happen occasionally. But there's one thing that every time I do it, I cry. It's at a baptism. I can't help it. We're at, we're at a baptism, and I guaranteed I'm going to cry. I remember uh, one of my first services here was seeing Savannah get baptized, just right here. And I, mean, I almost want to cry like thinking about it now, honestly. It's just... I mean, the, that someone's buried in Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, this physical demonstration that we get that says you've got this resurrection power. The Spirit has filled you, and now you can walk in the power of the Spirit and walk in the life of Christ. It's so powerful. That's what Paul says. I want you guys to know this. I want you to know God personally, but then I also want you to experience his power. You can know Christ that way. Listen to the way that it's described in Romans. Again, Paul says this, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Just as Christ died and was raised, we too die to our old self and were raised and we have this new power to walk in a newness of life. That's why some of us can be free from fears. We can be free from depression. We can be free from our addictions. We can be reconciled in our relationships with others. We start to bear out fruits of the Spirit, things that Paul would say as love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Bible also refers to this as first fruits, that we get these first fruits that, that while we're not there yet, as we're growing and we're walking this resurrected power, we start to bear out different fruits. Our character changes, our relationships change. We see first fruits that let us know that our, our future is sure because we're seeing God do it now and then one day he'll do it completely. This is the resurrection power that's available to us. And Paul's saying, I want you guys to experience this. I want you to have this power and live in it and walk in the newness of life. So the main points I hope that I've made clear are in Christ we can know God intimately. And in Christ we can experience God powerfully. But then you have to ask another question, how? How do we know and experience God better and better? Are there things that we can actually do that help us to know God better and better, to know him more intimately, to, to know this resurrection power. And there are. And so I'll close by just giving a few ideas on that. First thing is that we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. If you want to know God, you have to look to Jesus. Remember what Philip asked in that John 14 passage? Well, show us the Father. Jesus is like, Philip, haven't you, haven't you been with me? When, you, when you've looked at me, you've seen the Father. Listen to the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you want to know God better, the first thing you have to do is you have to look to Jesus. And you have to read the Gospels. 
because that's where you're going to get to know Jesus the best. I had a conversation with a neighbor, uh, this is probably, probably like a year ago, and this happens pretty often, maybe you've heard it too, where someone says, well, I really like Jesus, I like all, I like all of his teachings, and he taught a lot about love, and, and I, I like it. I'm like, okay, well, have you ever like, read the Gospels? Because he said a lot of other stuff too, and some of it's pretty crazy. And, and, and they, they would say, oh, no, I've never read it. I'm like, well, you should actually read it. Like, <laughs> you, I call that the fairy tale Jesus. People have this like, fairy tale Jesus that he just kind of floated around and said really lovey-dovey things. Read the Gospels, and he says some pretty wild stuff, some confusing things, some hard things. I like the way that Jake described it when we were doing one of our last series, and he had the, remember, he had the, the bowl of water and, and the two different dyes, and it was full of grace and truth. And this is exactly who Jesus is. I mean, he's, he will say some hard, hard, truthful things. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. No one did. Because he knew it as a reality. But no one loved better than Jesus. And so he's full of grace and truth. And we can't just believe in some fairy tale Jesus without confronting the text and reading them and looking into them and saying, I, I want to know this Jesus. Jesus would say some really hard things, like in John 7. A lot of people start following him, and he thinks maybe they're following him for the wrong reasons because he had just fed 5,000. And so Jesus does this often. He actually tries to get crowds to leave him. He does. He says that's why he taught in parables. He didn't do it to, to make memorable stories. When, when the disciples asked, well, why do you teach in parables? He said, to confuse people, <laughs> to get people to seek me more, because those who really want to know more are going to keep coming, and those who don't are, are going to step aside. And so in John 7... after these people are following him because maybe they want food or want to see miracles, he says, okay, here's what it takes to follow me. I have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Everyone's like, what? Like, (laughs) that's weird, man. It's like a cult or something. And so it says, actually, most of the crowd leaves. And then Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them, "Uh, are you guys going to leave too? And I think it's Peter that says, we're convinced that you have the words of life. Where, Where else will we go? And we've got to have those, like, where else will we go times with God, where Jesus says some stuff and it gets confusing, but we, we come and we keep seeking. We, we say, I, I want to know you better. I'm going to, I'm going to keep coming, even though I, I don't quite get it. And when he bears a fruit in our lives, it, it reminds us of who he is and that he's worth continuing to pursue. We have to look to Jesus first. If we want to know God, he's revealed through Jesus. But the second thing that we can do is that we can personally spend time with God Spend time with God personally. This is probably the most important thing that we can do. It's, it's super simple. In any relationship, communication is the key, right? So if I'm going to grow in my relationship with God, the, most thing, the thing I need to do most is spend time with God. I've got to read his word and I've got to pray. Those are the two ways that we communicate. God primarily speaks to us through reading the Bible. We primarily speak to God as we worship and as we pray. And this is, this is elementary, but it's the most important thing that we can do if we're going to pursue God. It's spend time with him. Seek him out to, to, to make time to, to get up earlier, to stay up late, or to carve out a time in the afternoon. Uh, we, we can't just walk with God by being involved in all this exterior stuff. We have to personally pursue God. Uh, I once heard this quote, and it's kind of, and I can come across kind of condemnation, but I didn't, didn't, for me at least it was really convicting. The guy said, if the bulk of your Christian life is just what people see on the outside, you're merely imitating what you think a Christian should be. So if the bulk of, of, of your faith and the way you walk with God is just stuff that people see on the outside, you might just be faking it. You're, you're just living and doing things before people. This is why we have to spend time with God personally, pursuing Him, carving out time. Here's what's really scary. 
So the church in Ephesus, you guys saw the picture of Ephesians, right? It's, it's destroyed. <laughs> There's just little columns and a few little you know, remnants that are left. Uh, that could be for any number of reasons societally that happened you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years. But you get a glimpse about the Ephesian church in Revelation because Jesus speaks again in Revelation 2 and 3, and he speaks to all these churches that were in modern-day Turkey. And the first one he speaks to is Ephesians. And this is what he says to the Ephesian church. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This is very same church that was the largest church in history at that time, thriving that you read about in Acts chapter 19, the one that Paul's joy-filled to write here in the book that we're studying now. But years later, this is what Jesus says to them. Exteriorly, you're doing great. You're doing all these great things. I know about your perseverance. I know about your sound doctrine. I know about all these things, but where's your heart? Your heart's grown far from me. He says, remember the things that you did at first. Can you guys remember a time where maybe in your life you felt really close to God? Like you were really pursuing him and spending time with him every day? That, that's what this is saying here. It says, remember that. Remember that. And then do the things that you did that, that got you there. Was there a time when you were, felt super close to God? It was probably because you were spending time with him. You were putting yourself in fellowship with other, other believers and you were really seeking him. Well, whatever you did then, do that again. I like to use this little phrase, uh, discipline or duty, discipline, delight. And, and that can kind of be maybe like a scale of, of how we pursue God. Sometimes it starts off with just a duty. Like, oh, I feel like I know. You might even be feeling right now like, yeah, I haven't been spending time with God. I know I need to. It's just kind of wrapped up in duty. And so maybe you change your behaviors and you get into this discipline category. So you're like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going to get up 20 minutes early and, and read a little bit and pray a little bit. I'm, I'm doing it. And then pretty soon, what happens if you get that discipline? It turns to this last category of delight. And if we can just take whatever next step it is for us, you're going to start to delight in God again and know God again and, and know him more and more and better and better. That's what God wants us to do. That's how we have to pursue knowing God. But lastly, we can also pursue God together. We can spend time with God corporately. That is, after all, why we're here, Right? That, that spending time with God personally is vital to knowing God, but spending time with others is vital to knowing God. No man can know God fully walking with God by themselves, that we have to do it in community. This is the way that God's designed it, that the church is what reveals the fullness of him. Even in the passage we said, he said that, that, that the Spirit fills, their, God, Jesus fills the church to its fullness in every way. We're never going to know God completely, but as we know God more and more, we do that in communion with others. Listen to this last passage here in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. If we really want to pursue God, we have to do it together. And for us, simply in this church, that means being here on Sundays. It means making this a priority to, to worship together. It means getting involved in one of the midtown communities and, and saying, yes, I'm going to go get involved. That's how, part of how I'm going to know God better by putting myself in this community. I'm going to get into one of the huddles and, and get together with fewer a group of girls or a group of guys and, and let people know me more personally. You can't pursue God apart from other people. And so all these require changes to our schedule. It's how we know if we're seeking God. Are we spending time with him personally? Are we pursuing him as a part of our church with, with each other. 
Guys, God wants to know you. God, God wants you to know Him more and more. We're all on a journey together, and we can continue to know Him more and more as we seek Him personally and seek Him corporately. Now, that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That's our prayer for you. It indeed should be our prayer for ourselves. So, why don't I close us in, in prayer? God, we just pray this prayer first just for ourselves. Maybe you can even repeat, repeat this prayer um, to yourself now. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation that I may know you better. Open the eyes of my heart so I may know the hope that you've called me to, the glorious riches of this inheritance, and the incomparable great power resurrection power. God, we do want to know you and ask, God, that you would build around us, even in this church, a pursuit of you. And as we seek you, reveal more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys uh, would... uh